so. Sometimes I listen to Christian podcasts about capitalism and finance because I like hearing exactly how other Christians are articulating their thoughts, right, on capitalism and how they think about money and such. And as you can imagine, it drives me crazy. I was just listening to one that's claiming faith-driven investing, okay, their words. This is clearly a a very right-wing Christian podcast, but faith-driven investing helped raise Eastern Europe up from the depths of poverty after the fall of the USSR because, you know, communism. And I'm only a few minutes in, but I already need a serious break. So instead of listening to that, um, I'd like to talk with you about faith and struggle today. In a way, that acknowledges the class division and contradictions and values and ideology and history in violence of capitalism. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Thanks for letting me get that out. I uh, need to take a breather. <sighs> but um, now I'm going to smoothly transition and say hello, everyone. Welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Um, So this is going to be our second Sunday of Advent episode, and if you haven't checked that out, uh, checked out the Prelude or the first Sunday, I've received um, a lot of exciting good feedback about those eps, which I really appreciate, so I'd recommend starting there first. But for today, we've got a bunch of great faith-driven, Jesus-centered financial advice for you. We're talking entrepreneurial spirit impact investing, and winning hearts for Christ. I've also got some stories for you about U.S.-funded charities in Haiti and Thailand and Guatemala that are, bring, that are bringing Jesus to people who are hopelessly poor because of atheism, Islam, and yes, communism. No, I'm just kidding. Now, we've got a, a new round of scriptures from the lectionary this week, and there were some really interesting things that came to mind that I thought we could discuss. And the scriptures for this Sunday are Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, Psalms 85, 1 through 2, uh, and also 8 through 13, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 15, and Mark 1, 1 through 8. You can either read them before or after or never, um, but I'll be reading the parts that I use for the convo, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Let's go ahead and uh, start with Psalms. All right, so Psalms 85, 1 through 2 starts off with a reminder or perhaps a prayer of gratitude to God for God's restorative work. Then verses 8 and 9 suggests that God must be at work to bring about real peace and salvation to the land and to the people. But the final four verses read this, quote, Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground, and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good, and the land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before the Lord and will make a path for their steps. I found it interesting that the word righteousness was used three times. And when we read the word righteousness, we should also read the word justice. So, Justice and peace will kiss each other. Justice will look down from the sky. Justice will go before the Lord and will make a path for their steps. Now, justice work is an interesting topic of conversation, I think, for anarchists, socialists, and communists, because we live in a world that talks about justice. 
But what they mean by that is reform. And personally, I do think of justice work as work that rights wrongs, or restores what has been wounded and violated, or work that reforms within unjust systems. And I think justice work is really, really important, right? But justice is not liberation, and we shouldn't conflate the two. So let's talk about the relationship between justice and liberation. On one hand, when we use the words social, political, or personal, people automatically assume that those things have nothing to do with one being in the working class or the ruling class, right? And when we use the word class, people again assume that class is outside of politics or flat out disregards particular social issues. And that's a language barrier that I think we have to overcome and dismantle. Social justice work is nothing without class struggle. And class struggle does not meaningfully occur without social justice work. In both social justice and class struggle are deeply political and personal processes. So I, I wanted to start off by saying that social justice should be one of the most serious concerns as Christians and radicals, right? Vulgar class reductionism has no place in our theologies, ideologies, and strategies. But as I said, justice is not synonymous with liberation. So while we may make justice work our daily work, justice and reforms are not the end goal. What we want is liberation and emancipation, right? What we want is fundamental transformation that only can be brought about through processes and seasons of revolution. But justice work and reformist work, right, like uh, workers winning a union contract or organized workers advancing in fights against a boss or debtors getting debt canceled or tenants preventing rent increases or communities kind of preventing gentrification and defunding police budgets, right? These are organized efforts through which we can, one, raise and radicalize consciousness, and two, we can build our capacity of radical organizing happening in our community. So justice work is not only important because it creates opportunities for people to better their own lives, but justice is also a means through which we can build for revolutionary transformation. Isaiah 40 got me thinking on a similar note. Verses 1 through 2 reads, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to them that they have served their term, that their penalty is paid, that they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. And while we will, of course, disagree with the understanding that the oppressed peoples of Israel and Judah were being punished with slavery and colonization, not by, you know, the imperial superpowers of the day, but by their God, what the psalmist is saying here in this moment is that God desperately wants the hurting and alienated and suffering people to be comforted. So, now that we've talked about justice and liberation, I want us to think about two different ways of thinking about and, and engaging in comfort work, which I think is a, a kind of justice work. Because not all comfort work, I would say, is very helpful. In fact, comfort work is globally being used to reproduce people's economic and political oppression. So we need to think critically and strategically about the kind of comfort work that we're uh, participating in. And two different kinds of comfort work that come with very different assumptions and intentions and strategies are charity 
and mutual aid. They are very, very different, and it's important we do the latter and not the former. All right, so charity, on the one hand, is work that intends to meet a, uh, a need temporarily. A lot of charity work even explicitly says that the work they're doing will never actually be finished, right? Lots of people who participate in charity will openly say, well, you know, the poor will always be with us, by which they mean you can't actually end hunger or homelessness or illiteracy or the people's lack of access to health care. <laughs> oh, sorry. Bad cough there. And so the intention is simply to meet a need temporarily, always and forever. You know, the root problem maybe is individual greed or sin, you know? But, but the intention and the analysis aren't the only things wrong with charity work. Charity, drenched in the language of benevolence and servanthood, is always paternalistic and condescending. And in the U.S., it's especially anti-poor. It's, it's racist and it's sexist. Uh, but charity is paternalistic in that, it, in that the charitable person assumes, right, that the, the person they are serving has nothing to offer them. It's not a two-way street. The, the charity giver doesn't even need the consent of the other person. They're not in solidarity with one another, right? Everything is decided by the person who establishes their superior position of power, and all the person who they see as below them needs to do is accept their gift. Now, NGO right and charity work has actually become an important tool for U.S. imperialism and the undermining of people's movements against neocolonialism and capitalism across the world. But we can talk about that another time. For now, I just want us to see that charity is paternalistic and hierarchical rather than mutual. And its end goal is very problematic as well. Mutual aid, right, this other kind of comfort work, on the other hand, is not only a more life-affirming way of comforting and caring for people, its intentions are also liberative. Mutual aid occurs between equal peoples, people who see each other as equals. This isn't paternalistic charity work. Some people are, are not the givers while others are the passive receivers. Mutual aid is done out of a radical love and solidarity for your neighbors, you know, for your community and, and for the most vulnerable and target, targeted peoples of your community. But just because someone is worse off than you economically or faces different forms of oppression doesn't mean uh, that there is a need for solidarity, right? It doesn't mean that they are not your equal or um, someone who you need to collectively struggle with, not for just, but, but also with. Mutual aid recognizes not only the differences between people, but also their common interests. So while liberation along the lines of race and gender and religion and sexuality and region of the world will be experienced differently for different groups, we also have common interests. One of them being our class. <laughs> Another being that we live on the same planet. Another being we are human. We should resist erasing our very real differences of experience, but mutual aid happens when people acknowledge their common and collective interests too. You can't do charity to someone if you are in real radical solidarity with that person. Your mutuality undermines the hierarchies that are most often present elsewhere. And mutual aid also doesn't assume that white supremacy and patriarchy, that capitalism's production of poverty and homelessness and material lack, have had the final word. 
Mutual Aid's endgame isn't simply being a band-aid. Rather, mutual aid can and must be a means through which we tangibly meet our people's needs. We build trust with friends and strangers, and we raise and radicalize consciousness. We are not working alongside the homeless or the unemployed or the person struggling to pay their utilities because the poor will always be with us, right? No, they are in this terrible place in life because of capitalism, because of bosses and landlords and banks, because of white supremacy and heteropatriarchy or perhaps U.S. imperialism. They are in this vulnerable position because policing is a racist, capitalist, sexually violent institution. And so the comfort work of mutual aid is a space for organizing and radicalizing, not just meeting needs and letting the world stay the same. But as important and urgent um, justice and liberation work is, Isaiah reminds us of our finitude as well. Verses 6 through 8. We read, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The work of God that we as Christians are called to participate in, right? The work of enabling and empowering and equipping the people to fight like hell for themselves and for their neighbors is urgent and profoundly important work. But the prophet doesn't let us forget that we are but finite humans. Even collectively, we remain partial, incomplete, and we fail, right? All people are grass, Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We are participating in nothing new. People have been fighting for power, dignity, mutuality, and liberation for a long time. And remembering our insignificance, our smallness, is a humbling partner that should join us in our confidence and relentless determination. Now, what's interesting is that this passage could also be read as suggesting an inevitability of victory, right? The word of our God will stand forever. And it could also be read to suggest a posture of nihilism. Listen, people are grass and flowers. The grass withers, the flower fades, and there's nothing we can really do about the world. But let's resist the temptation to foolishly hope with guarantees and inevitability. The people who assume love's final win are people whose consciousness has been colonized. And nihilism is a luxury for decent-income white people who think they are more enlightened than the masses of working-class people. So fuck inevitability and fuck nihilism. But acknowledging our finitude is a powerful and liberative posture. And I know we talked about this the first Sunday, but it's such a prevalent idea during Advent that even the lectionary reproduces. And so Second Peter 3, 10 through 13 reads, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way. 
What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and in godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home." End quote. And as I said last week, the Kairos moment vibes here, I think, are mostly problematic today, especially in light of our being conditioned to be passive consumers of entertainment and politics and the way things are, right? Rather than active decision-making participants struggling for collective power and radical transformation. Our capitalist workplaces and our bourgeois democracies and our consumer culture that is a product of capitalism keeps us sitting on our asses at home and at work while capitalists and their state representatives do all the decision-making for us. Kairos thinking speaks of special times, but there is no special time waiting for you in the future. We either start to act now or we continue to surrender the future. You know, I want a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home, but it ain't coming if we just wait for it. God wants us to desire it in our hearts and start doing something about it, right? We've got to start knocking on doors, setting up organizations, strategize, organize the people, and struggle for it. That's how righteousness becomes our home. And lastly, when I read our uh, section in Mark for today about John the Baptizer appearing in the wilderness, you know, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Isaiah too, speaking of a preparing of a way in the wilderness. I thought again of the importance of self-reflection and self-critique, both personally and as communities and organizations. The process of preparation requires constant open reflection. But reflection isn't the end of it. Knowing your Enneagram number, right, isn't going to keep Jeff Bezos from crushing the working poor in your city. As Dolores Williams reminds us, we may be sitting in what feels like a wilderness. It might seem as though there is no reason to actively hope and confidently fight. But God makes ways out of no ways through people and communities who are willing to prepare in the most challenging and frightening of places. If you feel like today is a wilderness, then lean into the tradition of way preparing, of way making, because that is what, as Christians, we must start doing. A better world is possible. I have no doubt of that, right? But we are going to have to win it. May you be baptized in this Holy Spirit this week. Talk to you soon.